Math is never just numbers. It's the reason the empire will take us. A genetic dynasty has reigned for almost four centuries. The order will vanish. Psychohistory could forecast the behavior of entire populations. Welcome to Foundation, the official podcast. I'm Jason Concepcion. You may know me from the Binge Mode podcast, where we covered Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, Star Wars, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I am so excited to talk about the adaptation of Isaac Asimov's novels that in many ways laid, sorry, the foundation for the science fiction that we know today. Every week on this podcast, I'll be joined by Foundation showrunner and executive producer David S. Goyer and other writers on the series will join us as well. Hi, David. Hello. Excited to be here. The aim with this podcast is to be your guide to the galaxy. The galaxy is extremely huge. There are hundreds of millions of planets involved in it. It takes light years to go across it, but we want to make it smaller. We want to make it brighter and add some context to everything that you see on the show. Today, we are discussing episode one, The Emperor's Peace, and episode two, Preparing to Live. There will be spoilers. So be warned, watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Uh, At first, uh, David, I'd love to know, what is your uh, personal relationship to this story? How did it come to you? When did you find it? I um, was given the trilogy. It was an omnibus uh, copy of the trilogy uh, when I was 13 by my kind of ne'er-do-well dad who was in and out of the house from the time I was six. And by that point, it was completely out of the house. And wasn't really the best dad, but loved science fiction. Mm. And um, so on my 13th birthday, he kind of showed up with this used uh, copy (laughs) and said, this is the greatest science fiction book ever written. You should read it. And um, so I was really pissed at him. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I was sort of like, screw you, dad. And I shoved it in my closet and I, I didn't think about it for a while. And when I was 25, I took it out and read it. And I liked some of it, mm-hmm. and I didn't completely get it all. And then I reread it again when I was 40 after I became a dad. And, and I got it, you know, and I got the context of it, and I got how brilliant it was. Um, because Asimov was really the first person to get people to take science fiction seriously. And shortly after I was 40, uh, I hadn't spoken to my dad in over a decade. And um, I got a call that he was dying and was on on his deathbed, and he wanted to make amends. And we did that sort of talk that you do with estranged dads. And then as I was leaving, he said, hey, did you ever read Foundation? And I said, yeah, I did. And he said, you should make that one day. At this point, I was I was making movies. And... I, I said, yeah, you know, I, I've i had an opportunity before because people had said, do you want to make it as a movie? And I'd passed on it. I thought it was too complicated as a film. And I said, um, if it ever comes my way again, I'll, I'll give it some thought. He passed away about a week later. And, um, you know, about a decade later, it swung around again like this comet. And I just said, I'm going to go for it. I wonder, and again, maybe if this is too much, let me know, but you mentioned saying that um, that you got it at a certain point. 
what does that mean? And what do you think, what do you think your dad was trying to convey to you with this book? I'll start with my dad. Sure. Because there are a lot of things he didn't do well. But the one thing that he did well was he read to me at an early age. He was a big genre fan. So he loved Asimov, mm. he loved Clark, um, he loved Tolkien, mm-hmm. and he thought there was m- real merit, you know, to these genres. And so he did impart that in me. And in terms of getting it, I mean, it's hard now to look back at when Foundation came out uh, in the late 40s, kind of early 50s, and sort of appreciate how revolutionary it was. Right. Right, because at the time, science fiction, they really were relegated to the pulps, these magazines that weren't considered art in the same way that comic books weren't considered art or fantasy wasn't considered art. And the magazines had these really lurid covers of like aliens Mm -hmm. with women in bikinis, you know, or, you know, guys with ray guns and stuff like that. And all these early science fiction writers like Asimov and Heinlein and, you know, L. Ron Hubbard. they were just churning out these stories to make a buck and they were churning them out as fast as they could. And, um, you know, Asimov, he was the first person that at least in science fiction said, I'm going to try to do something more. I'm going to try to use the genre um, to really say something about the human condition. Just to add some context for the folks, Asimov was writing this in the early days of, of World War II and all those kind of cross-currents of uh, a world in upheaval are laid bare in this in this story. You know, for me... And Asimov served in the army. Yeah. And his family had been refugees from Russia. So all of that stuff is there, a dissolution of an empire, what comes after democracy versus autocracy. I, you know, for me, I was a, a, a history buff in high school and a big nerd. And so just hunting around, what should I read? What should I read? What should I read? Foundation just found its way to me. And like you, it took me a while to be like, okay, I understand the scope of this and, and, and what he is trying to say. There are some huge, huge ideas uh, in the books and in the show. Um, And there's really never been anything like this show in terms of the scope of it. Um, This is a story that Foundation fans have been waiting forever for. Um, And as we said, huge ideas. No pressure. uh, Huge themes, um, existential themes. But of course, it's also about... um, It's also about characters. I mean, you know, just as a fan of the books... The opening, uh, there's an opening narration that, that uh, Gail does where she mentions characters who... Uh, Hober and the mule. Yeah, and yeah. It, that was, that fired me up. That was like, well, the other wow, thing, we're going there. The other thing that, that I said when I talked to Apple and Skynet about this because, you know, everyone knew that there was this big undertaking. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, quite rightly so. It's, it's, a, it's an expensive show. They're like, dude... Do you know where this is going? <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do, you, do you have a plan? Because, because, and they really held our feet to the fire because yeah. um, Asimov himself didn't finish this, the series. He never got to the end yeah. of the thousand years. And so I said, okay. Um, and I spent a couple of hours and I said, look, I, I'm going to take you through the basics of season two. And the basis of season three, and you know, with each season, like the details got a little bit whatever. But I said, I'm going to tell you 
how the show ends in eight seasons. Wow. And, and they're not just Easter eggs. They're, they're plot points that we're going to pick up on later on. For me, the theme of, of episode one is really about belief and truth. Uh, do you believe um, Harry? Do you believe in the Empire? Do you believe in the person that, uh, that you are shoulder to shoulder with in, in some of these struggles? Let's talk about, first of all, Harry's big contribution to the culture of the Empire, which is uh, psychohistory. Are you familiar with my work, psychohistory? Every mathematician has read your... Do you agree with the concept? In theory, but I don't know what it has to do with... Oh, it's not a theory. It's the destiny of the human race expressed in numbers. And it's the reason the Empire will take us. They're worried you can predict the future. They're worried people believe I can. And they don't like the future I predict. When Asimov was writing it, it was sort of an extrapolation of things that were just starting to be done for real with sociology and statistics. And basically the idea is is that with enough data entry, mm. he's come up with a, a, a formula that he can predict the mass movement of cultures with almost 100% accuracy. He can't predict the individual uh, course of your life. He says, right. I, I can't predict what you're going to have for dinner. Right. Uh, but, but he can predict with stunning accuracy sort of all the big stuff. And that's powerful and frightening but then it also brings into question all these you know well, what about free will mm. or determinism or if our fate's been sealed should we even bother trying to fucking do something right minor questions yeah <laughs> minor questions yes. that have barely any relevance to the world that we yeah, yeah yeah at all i mean that's what's crazy is i would argue foundation is more relevant now than okay. even when asimov wrote it yes and it's more relevant now than even when i started adapting it our entry point to these massive ideas is one Gail Dornick, played by Lula Bell. But I never reached Terminus, straddling the farthest reaches of civilization. Unsettled by man, it was the end. And its story remained dark to me until many years later. Until it became my story. Until it became the only story. Talk about centering Gale as, as the main character in this series and talk about um, what you're trying to accomplish with her narration across the series. So when, in the early days of me approaching this adaptation, um, the question I got a lot is, how are you going to take what is supposed to be a thousand-year story and even over the course of eight seasons tell it? Like, how, how are you going to do that? How are you going to jump from century to century? And And... That's a challenge. Yeah. But the bigger challenge was making it emotional because particularly the first book is anthological. Um, right. It, it sort of jumps from character to character to character. And in the first story, Gail Dornick is the point of view character. Uh, it's a man who arrives on Trantor and is supposed to start working with Harry Seldon and then gets rolled up into this incredible journey and we made the decision to expand the character of Gail Dornick and have Gail Dornick be the point of view character throughout the first season and notably to gender flip the character into a woman because the first book had virtually no female characters whatsoever. Yeah. So I said, she's a country mouse going to the big city. And over the course of season, the big city gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So it's not just that she goes to another planet. She's never been in space before, but then she goes to the other end of the galaxy. 
but that meant in order to really root the audience in her experience, I had to kind of tell her backstory. Yeah. So I had to pick her up even before she arrived on Trantor. And, you know, the challenge of the show was trying to dramatize all of these big ideas of Asimov. So take a person who's an outcast, who desperately wants to be accepted, who knows they won't be accepted yeah. on their home world, and, and knows that if she leaves her home world, she might even put her home world in danger. She's so excited to get to Trantor, to get to the big city, yeah. to meet her mentor, and then it just all goes wrong. I, I was uh, so appreciative of um, the casting here because it was wonderful to, through the casting of this woman of color who's so wonderful in this role, to feel like we have been, you know, as an Asian American, someone has imagined me in the future. Like, right. I, I, I see that I made it. I made right, it. Right. <laughs> I made it there. Uh, so that was wonderful. I, I, there was another uh, moment that really hit for me. She's on the shuttle. She's met Gerald. Uh, they're preparing them for the long jump. And he's like, I'm not sure why we do why, why, why we do all this stuff. And then she reels off. Exact, here's exactly why we do it. They, they can't have the gravity on for this reason. And all of a sudden, you're just like, ah, this is a bright mind, a shiningly bright mind who knows of what she speaks. And it must be so lonely for her on her world to not have anyone to share this incredible curiosity with. Yeah. I mean, she is lonely and she is an outsider. And I, I knew that I wanted the show to be diverse in all sorts of different ways. Mm -hmm. And in, in my mind, I mean, the empire is nightmarish. Yeah. And because the metaphor of the show in a way, it's, it, it's Asimov was writing in a post-World War II environment. You know, he was writing about the restructuring of Europe and, mm -hmm. you know, all of that. You know, I'm adapting it 60, 70 years later, so you have to come up with what's the metaphor for today. And one of the things that you're seeing being challenged, of course, is that, you know, previously a lot of the Western world has been run by white men. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of the uh, corporate world has been run by white men. And obviously that's starting to fracture. And so... The one thing that I did say to Apple, as I said, you know, I think most of these characters, it doesn't matter what gender they are in terms of the actors that we're looking at, doesn't matter what race they are. But I thought that the Empire, it just felt right that they should be white men. And um, because that's the kind of thing white, that- White men. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's a whole other thing. But the, but because that's what's happening today. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to- play into the this tendency to mansplain also, right? You know, Harry does it, yeah. Gerald does it, yeah. you know, different people do it where they're mansplaining. Lewis, yeah, the, yeah, exactly. And they just assume that she doesn't quite get it or doesn't quite understand. And the fact of the matter is she's either the second most intelligent person in the right. galaxy or she might be the first most right. intelligent person in the galaxy. And so she kind of gets it more than anyone. So let's talk about, you mentioned the empire. Let's talk about the uh, genetic dynasty. This is one of, uh, one of the major changes from the books. Talk about uh, making this change. So we work with Robin Asimov, um, Isaac Asimov's daughter. Uh, she's the gatekeeper of um, the estate 
of All Things Foundation, All Things Asimov, and she's an executive producer on the show. And Asimov himself had said before he passed that he knew an adaptation of Foundation would have to make changes, and he was completely open to that. And so the kind of gender flipping some of the characters or whatnot, I, I, I didn't think Robin would have a problem with, and she didn't. The genetic dynasty was the one thing I was wondering about, mm -hmm. but she ended up really appreciating it. And the reason that came about was because, again, I was trying to figure out ways of dramatizing Asimov's ideas. So if the empire is trying to resist change mm. and trying to cling to this sort of shrinking landscape, what's the biggest e expression of that? It's just well, I'm the same person over and over and over again. I, you know, I don't even want to risk the changes that might happen, the genetic drift with my son, and I yeah. don't even want to. I don't even want to welcome in the genes <laughs> of a mother or, yeah. or something like yeah. that. We knocked it out of the park with Cleon. Yeah, let's just run yeah. it back. Yeah. So it led to that came out of out of plot initially, but then what that also opened up for the Empire was this amazing storytelling thing because as as much as you know they're just clones of clones of clones and at any one time there's three of them you know on the throne it also allowed me and hopefully the audience to weirdly empathize with them too yeah. because they're all living in the shadow of Cleon the first and then they've got this other character Demerzel who's yeah. sort of this sheepdog yeah. who like and they each want to individuate they each want to believe yeah. that they can contribute but they're really just supposed to be kind of like marking time and sort of like living out this other guy's legacy. And that, I've never really seen that story before. And so that allowed us, I think, to tell some really surprising stories within the season. I was fascinated just by the, uh, you know, the kind of interpersonal relationship between these three versions of the same man. There's a great uh, scene in this episode where Brother Day is uh, using the roast peacock as a way to explain um, the way that power affects the people around them. It's the lard. The cook's injected under the skin with a needle right before roasting. Do you know why they use a needle? Because it's efficient. Because they're afraid if they use a knife, as is the time-honored way, they might rip the skin and I'll send them to a stew pot store 50 levels down. <laughs> All of which is a problem. Why? Because when people are afraid to do their job right, they're certain to do it wrong. That's poor stewardship. It's poor roast peacock. <laughs> Talk about that scene and uh, about the way these different versions of the same man interact with each other. I, I loved like just seeing the roles that they have carved out for each other. Dave's primary emperor. You have Dusk, who's kind of like the the moral center, kind of, of moral of, center or the kind of institutional knowledge. Yes, yeah. uh, and then you have a, a Dawn slash Ascendant Dawn, who is really the trainee. He's there yeah. to learn. Yeah, but they're also weirdly kind of grandpa, dad, and son. Yeah, but not. Yeah, and they have this really complicated relationship where they, on one hand, like I think the little one looks up to Day, who's played by Lee Pace, and is like, oh, I can't wait to be as awesome, you know. Lee Pace is great. As, as that He's guy. Amazing. Yeah. He was born to play this role. Yeah. And and then 
I think Day looks up to Dusk, who's played by Terrence Mann, is sort of like, fuck, that's how I'm going to look in 30 years, right? right. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm going I'm to yeah. stoop, right. and I'm going to get that roll of fat uh, over my abdomen. And then and then it's sort of like I he kind of hates him also because he just reminds him of his own mortality. Yeah. And so there's just all these really complicated things going on. And so I was determined with the emperors to shake things up and sometimes portray them in um, disarming ways. Mm. So they are a family. They're kind of funny they in are, that first scene. They are kind scene. of funny. They are quite and, funny. And I wanted that to be just like a a riff on like a weird like dinner table the scene. The way they say, Demarzel, yes, when she arrives. Yes. It's, like, <laughs> it's all kind of jaunty. Yeah. And, and they are funny and there's some funnier moments. I wish there were even more funny moments than there ended up being. But I just, I kept saying, especially with the other writers uh, that, I was working with that, you know, we need to portray them as human. Right. Yeah. One of the things I loved about that Rose Peacock scene is it showed that, you know, Empire does have a actually pretty clear eyed uh, understanding of the yeah. effect that their rule has on the people right around yeah, they them. They get it. They're they, not they're not naive. At the same time. Uh, you know, he also vaporized. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, that's ar- that's that's the, the thing artisan who is working on the mural of souls. That's I. But see, that's the kind of sticky center of the Cleons that I think is cool. Is, yeah, that, is cool. that they will be funny and charming and and witty, um, but also incalculably cruel. Yeah. They they're, they're both. Sometimes the other writers will have a tendency to just write him really mean. And I'm like, dude, he's way more effective when he can also be funny or charming or disarming or – and the one thing that he should never not be is smart. Right. He's really, really smart. How did you – how did you CGI my body on Elite Pace's torso? (laughs) How did you get that without my (laughs) – Lee worked out so hard. I mean, the guy was on just a punishing regimen. Um, now, but, if, but yeah, we did we did have a picture of you up in his trailer. I was wondering, he was yeah, aspiring. I, for- <laughs> um, so, of course, the uh, the thing that challenges this imperial regime is the truth revealed by Harry Seldon. A rotten tree trunk appears strong until the storm breaks it in two. Consider. Recent events in the Outer Reach. We're not here to consider any other... But you must! The Empire will fall. What should viewers take away from this scene, the truth of this? I I was struck just by the courageousness of Harry Seldon to blow up like this. And also to say, to call out the genetic dynasty and say, that's it, we should stop this. Well, I mean, the first uneasy truth is that he says is that not only is the empire falling, but it's past the point of no return. Like it's, it's, yeah. there's it's done. nothing right. you can do will stop it. Nothing, no matter how many resources you apply to this, how many wars you fight, it's over. The only thing that's in question is how fast it falls and then how horrible things are and for how long yeah. afterwards. And so... You know, that's something that ob- there are obviously parallels with climate change right now where yeah, people are just huge. saying, dude, there's – we're pat- – some people are saying we're already past the point of no return. Yeah. And and that's really hard for 
people to grasp um, on a personal level and I think, you know, on a governmental level. And so the empire, which is at this point in, you know, the future history of our show, the most impressive organization that has ever existed in the history of mankind. Just they can build, as Gerald says, as they pull up to the star bridge. Yeah, well, they can, they can, I mean, they can do anything. Yeah. And so it's impossible for them to believe that they can't do something to change. But, but the other sort of magic trick that's happening on, on two fronts that hopefully becomes more apparent to the audience as the season goes on is in this particular scene, Harry's baiting them. Right. Intentionally. Right. He's trying to get them to be embarrassed. He's trying, you know, because trying to force them into exiling his his little team of scientists. So he's trying to provoke them. He's he's poking the bear. I just want to talk for a second about uh, Jared Harris, who plays Harry. You know, Harry is so confident in any of these settings, whether it's the trial, whether it's talking to Raish, whether it's talking to Gail. But then there are these moments where... You see little glimpses of uncertainty. Where, yeah. where he's, he's working on a formula and he just hangs his head. Yeah. Or, yeah. And it's these moments where you really realize this is a high-stakes game. Yes, yeah. he, yes yeah. he is yeah. a genius with psychohistory and he knows what he... What the, he thinks he knows where this is going and he knows what outcome he wants to provoke. At the same time, this is a unbelievable gamble and that yes i was very determined to show and i talked to jared about this sort of the scene you would think the scene would end and then we might go bum bum and cut out of it And i was like no we're gonna stay with you longer and i just want to feel the weight of all of this on you because he he's not on a robot right. he's not unfeeling he's not uncaring he's he knows that his words are going to condemn you know untold billions of people he knows that many of his followers are he's calculated how many of yeah. them are going to live yeah. how many of them are going to make it to terminus and how many of them won't and 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 it weighs on him um but the other thing that's interesting about the truth right Sometimes in service of the truth, it's better to lie. And, this and that's, is a thing that comes up quite a bit yes, in this story. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Sometimes to serve the greater good, you don't tell the truth or you share, you spare someone the pain of something. And, and yeah, without alluding to too much for later episodes, we really get into that kind of in the middle to latter part of the season. The end of episode one, uh, we see the attack on the Starbridge. It is almost incalculably devastating. Um, and in the wake of that, Harry, his followers, including Gale, Raish, are exiled to the planet Terminus just as Harry was uh, wanted to happen. Of course, they were very close to being executed. It was certainly uh, it was certainly debated in the in the highest halls of yeah, power. Yeah, with like the, there's a five percent chance of this or whatever. Yep. Yeah, I love the scene with Harry and Gail as they're walking uh, down the hallway. They've just been exiled. We'll be fine. There'll be hardships. No question. Terminus. Orbit's a red dwarf. Seasons are extreme. Metal and mineral poor. You know it well. Exile was always the plan. Terminus was always the optimal location. 
And then she realizes, aha. Yeah, that l- the light goes in yeah. her eyes. And she's like, oh, this my God. This is what you wanted to happen. Oh, my God. This is what you wanted to happen. And you just played everybody. Yeah. And me. And then she's – so she both admires the fact that he did it. But she's also hurt that yes. that he didn't sort of take her into his confidence. And that was one of the other things I talked a lot about with Jared in relation to Lou and the character Gail is he's taking a big bet on this young woman. Yeah, huge. And um, he's just sort of weighing, did I make the right choice? Yeah. Is, 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 is she going to make the right but difficult decision like I've had to make? This brings us to episode two, Preparing to Live. What I really appreciate about these, this episode is, for me, this episode is all about doubt. We've, ha- we've seen Harry uh, reveal uh, the impact of his uh, psychohistory, what it means for the empire. And now you've got uh, the emperors questioning, oh, do, do we do the right thing in, in exiling Harry? Should we do something different here? You've got people within the foundation saying... I'm on this spaceship now for years. Five years. Um, talk about this about this journey. What would it What would it mean for these people they, who have given up so much in their life to spend five years on a on a on a shuttle, traveling away from everything they have ever known? The the story that we I had wanted to tell a little bit was sort of like fleshing in some of the backstory of like the when worlds collide thing of like we can there are only this many seats on the evacuation ship. And and so, yeah, these people are never going to see their loved ones again. They're going to go to this really inhospitable planet mm-hmm. where they know 20% of them are going to die within the first couple of years. And, and they're all, for them, doing it on faith because the math is so opaque that Harry really has become a religious leader. And he knows yeah. he sort of has to become that. That he understands the effect he, that he, he has he on people, and he, he uses a, it as yeah. part of, of he, he has to be a cult leader. Yeah, and so yeah, it's it's all about doubt. The empire has doubt. Harry has doubt. Raish has doubt. Gail has doubt. It's just doubt all the way around. And it, it, we talked about how Gail is, you know, top two most brilliant person in the galaxy. The only other person who can understand what Harry has done. But of course, that understanding comes with a view that no one else has. Math's not complete. What? The math. Harry's plan. It's not all worked out. I saw it when I had the prime radian. I never mentioned it in the trial. It's close. I'm not saying it's not close, but not everything is solved. It's like a puzzle with a thousand pieces. If a few are missing, you know, it's a high probability of what the picture is, but they're still missing. How many pieces are missing? Enough to make a different picture. I don't know. Maybe. You can see it on Raish's face. This is an earthquake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and even Asimov understood this mm. by the time he got into the second book, right? It's like if if psychohistory just predicts everything and there's no doubt at all, then it's just boring. Yeah. You know, there's no X factor. You have to introduce an X factor. Um. So as we mentioned, everyone on this ship has taken an, an enormous risk and taken a, a real leap of faith here. And I thought that one of the moments that really tugged at me upon learning that one, Gail and, and Raish's relationship has resulted in a conception. Um, two, there's that moment where she is in the uh, – she's being checked out by medical and – 
you realize what kind of person Gail is by the fact that the medical tech is willing to confide in her something uh, really secret and personal, which is that she knows that there's another crew member on this ship that is also with child, but wants to have the child on the ship, doesn't want to wait. Uh, yeah, they're not supposed the to give birth during the five-year journey. It's it's too dangerous, cosmic rays and whatnot. And so, yeah, the deal is is like, you can have sex with people as much as you want, you know. You know, but but the but but those zygotes, they gotta got, go. <laughs> they got it. They gotta go in the fridge. They gotta go in the fridge until we get there. And um, it, in that, yeah, that's the the way of sort of us, hopefully personalizing that quandary of, and also that sacrifice, right? Yeah, the, huge. It, it's like how do you, how do you weigh like your own desires and your own needs for for what you know in your head makes sense for the big picture and for the next generation, but you just really want that kid. Yeah. Yeah, that really tugged at me. Um, it is, I, I wonder about the atmosphere on the ship because Raish is always wearing his jacket, which I must now ask you about because I, as a fan of sci-fi and space, I think space jackets are so important. Han Solo is not Han Solo without the yeah. various jackets yeah. that he wears yeah. throughout the... Uh, Raish has a jacket that the best way to describe it is like it's like a, a mechanics jacket on top of a bomber jacket. Yes, yes. And, <laughs> and it's it, kind of like turquoise and gold. So Alfie, uh, Alfred Enoch, mm -hmm. who plays Raish, but everyone calls him Alfie on the show. Uh, he absolutely loved the jacket. and I absolutely loved it. Well, I loved it too. And, and the truth is pretty much everyone else hated it. <laughs> I, I was just like, I don't care. We're doing it. And then we, it actually got to the point at which we compromised and said, okay, in X amount of scenes, Alfie's going to wear the jacket and X amount of scenes he's not. And Alfie was like, I don't care. I'm putting it on for this scene. What are they going to do? Refilm the scene, you know? And so... It's just funny that there was definitely jacket gate, you know, on that. I love it. I love the jacket so much. Uh, so the Starbridge is, is something that was created for the show. What was the inspiration uh, behind that? How sciencey is that? The Starbridge is is based on a concept called a space elevator. That's um, forgive me, hypothetically been around for a few decades, and. Um, us science geeks or science film geeks are always trying to figure out ways to work it into, you know, a show. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'll tell you a true story. So when I was working on the new Terminator film, we were in this sort of writer's room with James Cameron, and we would meet with uh, Jim once a week or so. And he's the biggest sci-fi geek of all time, and he loves space elevators too. And it's this submarines and space yeah, elevators. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and after about a month or so, I was still working on Terminator, but in the in, in the background. Uh, Josh Friedman, who wrote the first two episodes with me, we were we were talking about it, and I came back in and I said, "Hey Jim, we're going to put a space elevator into the, <laughs> into the first episode." And, uh, he was it was just uh, like a funny. He was like, "You're never going to be able to pull it off. You're not going to have the budget." And I was like, "No, we're going to do it." <laughs> so star bridges are more colloquial way of explaining what a space elevator is, which is literally the concept is if you sort of unspool a tether mm -hmm. from orbit, right? You know, 26,000 kilometers high. It's, 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 it's that idea, like, you know when you take, like, a ball at the end of a string and yeah. you swing it around, it's a centrifugal force is what keeps yeah. the string taut? 
the concept is if, if we could do that, right, we could just basically launch payloads into space up and down the string and like not expend any fuel, not expend any energy. Oh, wow. Hypothetically, it's possible. Hypothetically, we could build one now. But it's also just a giant phallic symbol for the empire. <laughs> uh, this attack has affected the genetic dynasty in different ways. Um, Ascended Dawn is terrified. Day is furious and lashing out almost in his in in the empire's inability to get to the bottom of this. Well, this was the this was the nine eleven response, right? I mean, that's. You know, scrape away the science fiction of it all. What what are the um, are there any real world antecedents for this? So anyway, that was at least the basis for this. But keep going. Yeah, and then dusk is, I think, affected in a in an emotional way that surprises. It surprised me, yeah. and it, I think it surprises his brothers slash family slash co emperors as well. He is so affected that he then. It wants to travel down into the scar. He wants to smell it. He wants to feel it. He wants to hear yeah. what people are going through many levels down. And he ends up at the Seer Church. If he truly saw the fall Seldon spoke of, if her math allowed her to see this. She came here. I know she did. What did you talk about? Empire. Your God? Tell her about the Empire? The sleeper doesn't know Empire. her. Come with us. She is not a seer. Your empire is doomed. So he has this interaction with the uh, the seer, and as they leave, um, Demarzel is struck by a piece of, of falling concrete debris. She is, you know, saying, we got to get out of here. This is, yeah. everything is still settling. Yeah. You know, this is very un- unstable. First of all, they don't make them like they used to. That piece of debris dropped from, you know, hundreds of feet in the air, hit her. She's just like, yep, that hit me. I register that I've been injured. And then, of course, we get the reveal that she is the only Android AI left in, in the, the galaxy. galaxy. Yeah, um, that's what she says. What an incredible, one, incredibly lonely thing. And two, for her role as this confidant slash mother slash midwife yeah. um, slash teacher yeah. for these men... How did you how did you find that character? Well, in a way, Demerzel is the soul of the show, but her character is definitely a slow burn, and I like characters like that. Uh, I like characters that are kind of like in the background and progressively come into the limelight, and then you realize retroactively that they were more important than it, they may have first appeared. And then she's got this odd little conversation with Dawn where she's like, you know, but, you know, they're all gone. And she's like, no, they weren't. They were destroyed by your kind, i.e. humans. And so then it's kind of weird because she's like she clearly thinks of herself as a person Mm. and 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 basically just says your kind performed genocide on my kind. And hopefully that will evoke a bunch of questions in the audience in terms of, well, what is she doing there? What happened with those stories? And and we're not going to peel all of it back, but we're certainly going to peel some of it back this season. Wow. Um, this episode, episode two, ends with two really shocking moments. Um, the first is, of course, 
the murder of Harry Seldon by Raish uh, and Gail's subsequent escape, the bloody knife at the bottom yeah. of the escape tube. This was a an unbelievably brutal and shocking moment. I'd, I'm sure you can't spoil too much of what comes after, but how how can this foundation carry on now without their without their the center of gravity? I approach shows like a viewer, right? I, I mean, I like bingeable shows, and I like it when and I'm I know story pretty well, and I like it. I love when it. I'm, what a casual flex. No, I, I do. Know. I do. I do. <laughs> but I like well. it when I'm watching a show and I don't know where it's going. Yeah. And I'm surprised. And I'm because then I'm really in it and then I'm really transported. And so I talk a lot in our writer's room about, um, you know, especially when we're pitching story, yeah. I'll say, just as a hypothetical, what is the worst? possible thing that could happen to this character at this point in time or what is the thing that would just seemingly just break the show yeah and then i'll say let's see if we can do that and not break the show and so what i like about that episode too is if i'm watching the end of that episode i have no idea where this show is going and the second uh brutal moment as a bookend to the kind of mailed fist intro from the Empire is the execution of the Anacreon and Thespis delegation, except the their lead ambassadors who uh, are made to watch this devastation. Well, and, and in fact, Dusk even says, I think you're both innocent. It yeah. was like, I think one of you at least is innocent. Yeah. Maybe both of you are innocent. Uh, when he says something to the effect of, it is a taste that I have in my mouth, yeah. the dust of yeah. these people. Yeah. Um, you can tell how much that animated Yeah, because he went there. Yeah, and uh, what a... I, I would assume that some people are like, how does, it, how does the, the Empire maintain its control over this unbelievably vast galaxy? Here's your answer. They have um, their ability to organize and to marshal military force in a way that nobody can well, match. Well, they we see it here. have a monopoly on jump technology. So the universe is really vast. Only Imperial ships can fold space. Only Imperial ships can jump from planet to planet. So everyone else is stuck in the slow boat. That's how they you know, maintain the stranglehold on the galaxy and will explain in later seasons how that monopoly happens, how it works, how it happened that they're the only ones with this technology and how they sort of keep that on a leash. Wow. And so it was important to me and it was a very expensive scene, but I, I said we need to show the full Monty, the CG of it all. We need to see them just like this crazy might in terms of blowing up the worlds, but then we need to see the full Monty of the hangings and and all of this cruelty. And so I say all the time that the show... The scope of the show is like as big as a galaxy and then sort of as narrow as, yeah. the, as the human soul. And that is something that we try to do constantly. I'm, I'm like, I don't want to do anything in between. I either want to be super huge or I want to be super intimate. That was great. Okay, now we are almost out of time, but I had a lot of small questions. I'm sure that the audience has a million questions. So we came up with this segment that is called Building the Foundation and is Essentially, a very, very, very fast, light speed, fast question and answer round. David, are you ready? I'm sure I'm not, but go. 
Number one, for us dummies out here, how does folding space work? How does warp work? Why does Gale need to be asleep? Because it's a it, folding sp- oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's folding spaces alchemy, folding spaces magic. It's it's scary. The imperial ships they, they have got like, that donut hole in the design, and they they generate a little black hole. So they they generate oh, wow. a black hole around them, and then punch a hole through the universe. Well, why are we- simple? That's very simple. It's thirty thousand A.D. Uh, why are we still hanging, folks? We can't. They're running out to the to the hardware store to get the rope. Uh, because it's visceral. Yeah. Uh, because nothing gins up the crowd like a good old hanging man. Um, two. Is there a name, a particular name of a store where Raish got this jacket? Did he order it on whatever version of online is? Uh, where did he get it? What I love about the jacket here is that it's very retro. Yeah. Like deliberately retro. Because one of the things that I also wanted to do with the show was just. Have it feel new, but also a little bit evoke some of that golden age of science. Also, by the way, he's like 17 feet tall. Like it would, it doesn't, that jacket doesn't look good on a normal human being. Oh, believe me, I know all about it. As a six foot seven human being. No, I'm just kidding. You mentioned the slow boat. How slow are we talking, actually? The sublight, subfolding ships. How fast are we going? I think I said like half the speed of light. So it's still pretty damn fast. I actually calculated. So we had various science consultants, mathematicians, and physicists consult. And at, at one point, we actually figured out how fast the deliverance is going because I'm a geek and I need to know. Yeah. And I mean, I can't re- remember, but but the sci- the numbers hold up. They're legit. <laughs> uh, and then finally, uh, what's in the vault? The, what is inside the vault? There's no way I'm going to answer what's in the vault. And and <laughs> and if people who've read the books think they know, they don't. Oh, I love that. I love that because, you know, I feel like I suspect, but now I am shaken to my core. David, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Max Linsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Barry Finkel. Our senior managing producer is Gabrielle Lewis. Our producers are Ahmed Ali Akbar and Jonathan Shiflett. Darby Baloney is our senior editor. Our composer is Carly Bond, and I am Jason Concepcion. Thank you for listening.